Thank you so much. Beautiful song, beautiful song. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are building your kingdom here. And Father, you are using us as living stones in a temple to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. So Father, we offer ourselves to you this morning as living sacrifices. Everything on the altar, totally consumed for you. Father, would you loose our hold on this world and would you open our eyes to the true riches of your kingdom? And Father, we're asking this morning that your kingdom will come and your perfect will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, would you use us as instruments of your grace and may we live for your kingdom and your kingdom alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I am so delighted to see each of you and even more of you in here this semester. It's feeling a little bit more like normal, even though I'm looking out at masked faces. <laughs> I am delighted to be here. And do you not love this set? Oh, my goodness. Yes, thank you, Dana, Mark Alexander, all of those who make this possible. We are so incredibly blessed. And at some point, you need to walk up on the stage and take a look at this table. It is absolutely beautiful. It's stunning, every place setting. And I'm sure Dana at some point will give us some of the symbolism. But when you look up here, everything has a meaning and a purpose behind it. So we are just so incredibly blessed to have this setting to begin to think about the kingdom of God this morning. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look back just briefly at chapter 4, because I want us to put the Sermon on the Mount in context, and let's look at where Jesus has been, what he's been doing prior to preaching this message on the Mount of the Beatitudes, which is what it has come to be called. We see in chapter 4 that Jesus is not only baptized prior to 4, but then he goes into the wilderness, and it's there that he's fasting for 40 days and nights, and then he's tempted by the devil. We know that every time the enemy came to him with a temptation, how did Jesus respond? It is written. It is written, which is exactly how we are to respond if we're going to be able to stand against the schemes, the lies of the evil one. When he comes to us with what ifs, that beginning that makes you start that downward spiral into darkness, what if, what if, what if, we counter him with what is. It is written. So we counter the lie with the truth of the word of God, just like Jesus did. And then we see that Jesus begins his ministry. And in fact, he said in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus coming to earth brought the kingdom of heaven among us. And after we are saved, when his spirit comes to indwell us, his kingdom sets up residence in our life. And we are to begin to live for his kingdom. And then we see he calls his first disciples. He calls Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they leave their fishing careers, and they become fishers of men and disciples of Jesus Christ. Then pick up in verse 23. It says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. 
The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Now that's what we're going to be studying. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven come to earth. And he is going to begin by sharing with them how that kingdom can be realized by us as well. You know, when we think about discipleship and what it means to literally begin to think about and live in the kingdom of heaven, it is the life that Christ described in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said in the Great Commission that we're to teach the followers of Christ, everything that he commanded. Well, these are his commands. This is his philosophy of life, if you will. He's telling us how to live the good life, the life that leads to well-being and spiritual flourishing. You know, transformation always begins with the renewed mind. Romans 12, 2 tells us that. So as we begin to set our mind on things above, not on things in this earth, we begin to see Christ as he is, and he literally becomes our life. When he becomes our life, our love for him forces out fear. We're instead filled with courage and confidence, not in our abilities, but in him and in who he is in us. And then real renewal of the mind takes place that enables us to live this life of obedience to this high calling Christ has placed on each one of us, where we will understand that we are to do not just hear the word of God. You know, it's very easy to come to Bible study after Bible study after Bible study and just gather knowledge. But it is not just knowledge that we're after. We're after life transformation. So it's when we take what we're learning and we literally begin to believe it, <clears throat> that it moves from our head to our heart, and it becomes a part of who we are, and that's when we actually experience renewal. There's a basic outline to the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes that Jesus begins with in verses 1 through 12 are the attitudes of the heart that he is calling us to. In fact, as we met prior to the Bible study a couple of weeks ago, Dana Jean and I met to kind of walk through the, the study together to begin to pray together about it. And we had just this really sweet time of prayer. And then we asked the Lord to give us a nugget of truth for each week kind of something we could all grasp and hang on to. And the nugget of truth for the Beatitudes was that the Beatitudes are the how-to-bees. Because you've got to be before you can do. We have to become like Christ on the inside, and then we will act like Christ. Because we act out of what we really believe. So if we're becoming like him on the inside, we will then act like him outwardly. So we can't begin with the things he's telling us to do. We have to begin exactly as Christ began, and we have to make sure we have the attitudes of the heart that depict Jesus Christ. And then he goes into the kingdom life here on earth. How are you who are being like Christ, how are we to live? He lays it all out for us, doesn't he? And then he gets to the end, and he gives us the result. Uh, Matthew 7, 24 through 24. Nine, he's talking about the wise person builds her house on what? The rock, right? And the storms come, they beat upon the house, but the house does not fall because it's founded upon the rock of Jesus Christ and the rock of his word. So when we build on that, we're like a wise person. But what does the foolish person do? 
The foolish person builds their house on sand because they're building their house on temporal things, things that are passing away, things that will not stand against the storms of life. And everybody encounters storms. Everybody in this room is either in the midst of one, about to go in one, or you're coming out of one. <laughs> we all experience storms in this life. And he's telling us, if you will obey the truth of the Sermon on the Mount, you will build your life upon the rock, the rock of Jesus Christ, who will enable you to stand firm against storms and the schemes of the enemy. So that's the basic outline of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when we think about the kingdom of God, we have to understand we live in the kingdom of earth, the kingdom of man, right? But we are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven by birthright because we've been born into the kingdom through Jesus Christ, filled with his Holy Spirit. So if you think about the two realms of existence, and you know, we've talked about this many times, heaven is not like light years away. It's not way out there somewhere. It is another realm of reality that is all around us. Right now, there's a veil that separates us from that realm, and we're not able to see, but we know all throughout Scripture, God would open people's eyes spiritually and allow them to catch a glimpse of what is actually taking place in the throne room or what's happening in the spirit realm. And so these two realms, it's like two parallel tracks, if you will, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. And when you're saved, these two realms intersect. And now you are living in the kingdom of man, but you are now primarily a citizen of heaven. So the longer we walk with Christ, the more aware of and in tune with the kingdom of heaven we should be, and the less the world will have a hold on us. We are to set our mind on things above, as we said, not things on the earth, because that is where Christ is, seated in the heavenly realm. And we are actually there positionally with him, Ephesians tells us, and the enemy is under our feet because we are in Christ. So what the Sermon on the Mount is going to enable us to do is to become more aware of the kingdom of heaven and to allow the earth to lose its grip on us. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 4.9, Paul makes it clear, now listen and think about this, this is huge, that our lives are being observed, not just in the natural realm, but in the supernatural as well. It says, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Now listen what Francis Schaeffer said in True Spirituality. The word in the Greek, which is translated as spectacle, has nothing to do with our modern use of that word. It's the idea of theater. We're on a stage being observed. He says here that the supernatural universe is not far off and that while the real battle is in the heavenlies, our part is not unimportant at all because it's being observed by the unseen world. It's like a one-way mirror. We are under observation. We know that from other places in Scripture. We know it from the book of Job. In fact, if you're reading the one-year chronological Bible, you're in Job right now. And what happened at the very beginning of the book of Job? There is a scene taking place in heaven, and the enemy knows about righteous Job, and God even points him out. So we know there is something going on in the spirit realm that impacts this man Job, and what Job does has real effect and impact on the spirit realm. 
We're given a glimpse into the throne room of God and we're granted insight into a cause and effect relationship with heaven. Now listen to this quote from Francis Schaeffer. Job did not understand that he was being observed, but he was. More than that, he was playing a part in the battle of the heavenlies, even though he did not know it when the series of disasters struck. He was not only being observed, but there was a cause and effect relationship from the seen to the unseen world. We know this in the teaching of Christ, too, because Christ tells us that when a sinner repents, the angels in heaven rejoice. We also know recently Steve preached a message on Elisha and how when this army came against him and his servant walks out that morning and this army has surrounded them for one prophet who had been telling the king of Israel what the enemy was doing and giving, God was giving him wisdom and he was passing it on to the king so that all of their movements were thwarted. So the army comes after the prophet and what happened? The servant walks out and he sees this big army and he thinks, oh my goodness, we're defeated. This army has come after us. What will we do? And what does Elisha do? Does he panic? Is he anxious? No. He walks out because God had granted him spiritual sight. What did he see? Chariots of fire, angelic beings all around them. And what did he say to his servant? Greater are those who are with us than those who are with them. And I want you to know that should be a word of comfort and encouragement to us today. Because the one who lives in us and who is for us is greater. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. And greater are those who are with us than those who are against us. We do have a very real enemy. And along with him in our flesh, they'll fight this change. Your flesh will fight this change. The evil one wants to keep us ensnared by our errant thinking. That's why we must be diligent to stand firm against his schemes and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This requires that we slow down enough to actually think about what we're thinking about <laughs> and the choices that follow our line of thinking. Are we thinking biblically? Is our mind truly set on things above or are we still entangled with all of the things around us that can literally suck us in and cause us to lose our perspective? We're to have a kingdom perspective. So we know the wise person at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is the one who listens and obeys this message that we're going to be studying. So we want to be that wise person. Dallas Willer said, certainly life on the rock must be a good way to live. Wouldn't you like to be one of those intelligent people who know how to live a rich and unshakable life? One free from loneliness, fear, and anxiety, and filled with constant peace and joy. Would you like to love your neighbors as you do yourself and be free of anger, envy, lust, and covetousness? The life, this life is actually possible through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Dallas goes on to say, clearly, our entire inner reality of thought and feeling would have to be transformed to bring us to such a place. Now, this sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? A life free of loneliness, fear, anxiety, but it's exactly what Christ is going to be teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the life to which he's called us. I spoke last night at a discipleship group, and they asked me to speak on biblical womanhood and marriage. And I was talking to them about how important it is that we die to the flesh 
so that we can come alive to the Spirit, so that we're changed on the inside. So often, because we have legitimate needs for love and for our, our lives to have purpose and significance, that we go around to other people wanting them to fill our empty cup. We're like a beggar, and we go to our friends, or we go to our spouse, and we go to our children, and if they don't do what we're expecting, what happens? We get our feelings hurt. We're deflated. We're discouraged. We may take it out on them. <laughs> but if my needs for love and significance have been met in my intimacy and personal walk with Jesus Christ, then I'm able to love them out of the overflow, and I'm able to release them so that the Lord can work in them and speak to them, and I'm not in charge of them. <laughs> That's a tough thing for a wife and a mom, is it not? To let everybody go and release them to the Lord and pray for them and focus on me being the woman, wife, mother, grandmother God has called me to be, and then let him speak to them doesn't mean you're not going to speak truth to them. You will. You're going to pray for them. You're going to intercede for them. You're going to stand in the gap for them. But you cannot be the one who changes them. Only the Lord can do that. And he has access to all of our hearts and minds. And oftentimes we'll find when we get out of the way, they're able to hear the voice of the Spirit. Sometimes we overshadow what the Spirit of the living God is seeking to do in their lives, and we get in the way. So we need to release them. And we need to get our needs, legitimate needs, met the way God designed them to be met and get them met in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, unfortunately, many of us have been impacted by culture more than we realize. The value system of the world, its focus on materialism, has swept us into its current. How are we to break away from worldly or fleshly thinking and, live in, and living instead focus on and live for the kingdom of God? Well, part of the way we do that is through spiritual disciplines. And each week, at the end of your week, if you've looked ahead in your Bible study, you will see that on day five of each week, we will introduce a spiritual discipline. Now, what is a spiritual discipline? Sometimes when we say the word discipline, we think, <laughs> I, don't really, I don't really want to do spiritual disciplines. Well, all it is is it's an order, a rhythm of life, if you will. You incorporate certain things into your life that ground you and enable you to build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ and his word. So as we look at these spiritual disciplines each week, we're going to give you some activities to help you incorporate each of these disciplines into your life so that you can make them a part of who you are internally, and these will literally be building blocks for helping you build your life on Jesus Christ. You know, there are certain spiritual disciplines we observe in the life of Christ that we, are, we need to emulate if we're going to experience the life and the inner transformation that Christ is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. This is not going to come about as a result of a completing the course of study, of finishing the Bible study. That's not what happens. This transformation will come about as we actually begin to live out what we know to be true. It's about becoming an apprentice or a bondservant of Christ and beginning to live as he lived. We must understand that special experiences, faithfulness to the church, correct doctrine, and external conformity to the teaching of Jesus all come along as appropriate, more or less automatically, when the inner self is transformed, but they do not produce such a transformation. Now think about that, because many of us live more like a behavior modification mode. Now I'm in education, I'm in 
major in background, and so they taught us behavior modification techniques for classroom control. But that's just external conformity to rules. What we're looking for is not external conformity, because if you're just conforming externally, guess what? You're going to burn out because we cannot do it. And you're going to begin to think that, well, the Christian life works for everybody but me. No, no, no. Outward conformity to the law never worked. Read the Old Testament. Nobody can live up to it. Jesus Christ was the only one who could live up to the law, who could live it perfectly so that he could take our place and pay our debt on Calvary. So because he has saved us, because he has set us free, because he is now transforming us internally, he begins to change our desires. So no longer is it, I have to obey, I desire to obey out of gratitude and love for my Savior who has done so much for me. So our first objective is to love the Lord with all of our being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is the greatest command, and it will accomplish in us and through us everything Christ has commanded. That's the first thing we have to do. The training that takes place in discipleship is about halting our automatic behaviors and responses. We place our entire being on the altar as a living and holy sacrifice to the Lord. It's only then that our automatic reactions or responses can be reprogrammed. No longer enslaved to our flesh, we're free to be filled with His Spirit, and He enables us to walk as He walked, walks. The Bible states, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's why we have to change our thinking, because our thinking determines who we are and how we behave. It's only by changing how we think that we can be changed. We talked briefly last semester a little bit about how neuroscience has caught up with the Bible, <laughs> how the Bible has said that our minds can be renewed, that we can be transformed from the inside out, that we can literally have new ways of thinking. And what is so amazing is, as neuroscientists have studied the brain, they see that as people change the way they think, it literally changes the physical structure of our brain. And if you will think about what you're thinking about, and as we work through this study, when, you, when Jesus is saying, don't be anxious about tomorrow, just take care today. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. You cannot serve God and money. You're going to love one and hate the other. You have to choose. As he walks through these things, loving our enemies, praying for those who, who curse us, we are going to be called to an upside-down, inside-out way of living. It's completely opposite of what we have known in the flesh. Do you know why? Because we are a spirit, soul, and body, and I typically like to depict it by three concentric circles. And our spirit man, our innermost being, was dead prior to coming to Christ. It is when we come to Christ and we're born of the spirit, like Jesus explained to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that our spirit man's brought back to life. That's what sin did. It killed us first spiritually and then eventually physically. So when our spirit man's brought back to life and the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, we now have to learn to live from the inside out instead of from the outside in. Now think about your physical senses, hearing, your sight, smell, taste, touch. That's how we live and discern what's around us, right? By physical senses. But now that you're born again, you have spiritual 
senses. God will grant you spiritual sight, and that's what happens when revelation takes place. When God opens your eyes and something that you've known factually from the word of God, suddenly you see, and then it's yours forever. It becomes a part of who you are. Or like Elisha, when God opened his eyes and allowed him to see the angelic warriors and the chariots of fire, God gave him spiritual sight into the spirit realm. So we ask God, to, Lord, give us eyes to see as you see. How many times did Jesus say, to him who has ears to hear, let him hear? Now the people he was talking to, the vast majority of them could hear physically. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who have ears to hear spiritually, who grasp the significance, the truth of what he's teaching. What are we to be? The aroma of Christ everywhere we go. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And once we taste of him, the world loses its lure. We no longer desire it. We desire Christ and we desire his kingdom. He does change us from the inside out. So I'm going to ask you to begin to pray and ask the Lord to make you more aware of your spiritual senses than of your physical senses. And to allow us to become in tune with his voice as he teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. Dallas Willard in the Renovation of the Heart said, spiritual formations for the Christian basically refers to the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Christ himself. What a miracle. But that's no more miraculous than the truth we know that the spirit of the living God who knows the thoughts of God lives within our physical bodies. You don't get more miraculous than that. And because of the blood of Christ applied to us, he's able to dwell within us without his holiness consuming us. Because in the Old Testament, he could not even be approached without his holiness burning people up. But because of Calvary, he's able to live within us. And Jesus, the actual word of God who became flesh, Jesus, the logos, the organizing principle of the world, the agent of creation, the being that holds the whole universe together, it means that then his philosophy, his teaching, his words alone are whole, complete, and truly true. You know, philosophers in years past, Aristotle, Plato, whichever ones you want to look at, they all espoused their philosophy of life, and they were telling you how to live so that you could flourish. They were telling you how to live for your well-being. Well, philosophy today has gone way away from a philosophy of living into, I'm not even exactly sure what you'd call it. Are we real? Is this true? Are you here? You know, it's all this existential stuff. But Jesus gave us a philosophy for life. He's telling us in the Sermon on the Mount how to live for our well-being. What does he say at the beginning of the Beatitudes? Blessed, happy. He's telling us how to live for our well-being. And these are truths of the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, that we are to make a part of our life right now. You know, salvation is just the door. There is an entire kingdom to explore and incorporate into our lives on earth. This life depicted by heaven coming to earth. Spiritual disciplines are daily rhythms built around the kingdom of God. 
Spiritual disciplines will be included, like I said, on day five of each week's study, and we're going to ask you to begin to incorporate those into your life. These new habits of thought and action are the pathway to a new inner reality. Think with me. What would happen if all of us, as true believers, really began to put into action the truths of the Sermon on the Mount? If we began to really think and live as Christ did. I can tell you right now, just this group of women, and this is just half of us in the fellowship hall together, to the rest of you who are in small group rooms, to those of you who are watching online, what would happen if we made a commitment to be Christ in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at work, our communities, in our church, as we love each other? What if we chose to be Christ online, on social media, and we chose to only post those things that point people to Jesus, that would encourage them in their hunger and seeking for him because everybody's longing for purpose and meaning and to be loved. And we have him. We have him. We have the only one who can meet those needs. We have the answer to every person's longing, and his name is Jesus. Will you commit with me? I believe God's wanting to do something revolutionary in our lives this semester. I am sensing it. He's wanting to disrupt our status quo. And he is calling us to live life in his kingdom that has come to earth and is living in us. May we say yes, 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 Father. Do it. Do it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your kingdom is here and now in us. Father, it's not somewhere far off. It's not for when we enter eternity. You granted us abundant life, eternal life now, that we might begin to taste and see that you are good. Father, you have come to fill every longing. Lord, we offer ourselves to you once again, and we say, Yes, yes, Lord. Disrupt the status quo in our life. Help us to open our hands and hold everything in an open palm. Longing only to see your kingdom come from heaven to earth in all of our lives. And Father, as we begin to live in the spirit realm, not just the natural, would you grant us eyes to see as you see? and ears to hear your voice. Father, would you grant us divine appointments to share the name of Jesus, to pray with people that we encounter as we're out about our day? Would you help us, give us opportunities to share the gospel and see people birthed into the kingdom of heaven, knowing that God, angels are watching us. Heaven is aware. And Lord, it so moves my heart to think our precious march has joined that great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on. Father, may we live for that kingdom, not the one of this earth. May we live for your kingdom, and may it come in every one of our lives. How we bless you and praise you for all that we have in Christ. Now, would you open our hearts and our minds as we commit ourselves to this study and reveal yourself to us. 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.